0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. Thanks for joining me for this episode where I'm speaking with Dan Pickering about a very topical subject that of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and derivatives of that in the digital assets world. We talked to Dan about some of the phenomenal headlines and stories. From the fellow who bought two pizzas for the equivalent of $730 million using Bitcoin back in 2010, had he hung on to them, right through to some of the areas of the market that he think are absolutely going to zero. I think you'll find this, if nothing else, very educational to get an understanding of a new area of markets that is increasingly attracting attention. Please remember, this podcast isn't a recommendation or is it specific advice. Please, you're encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Please also remember to get your feedback coming through. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I'd also like to call out Joshua Clark, my son, as the editor of the podcast. Thanks a lot, Josh, your work's appreciated, as well as Tom Oriel for his work in helping to produce the episode. I also need to thank Charles Moore, a fellow partner of mine at Coda Capital, who helped with the research on this episode. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Really appreciate it. Without further ado, enjoy the podcast. Dan Pickering, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me, David. Well, Dan, we're going to venture into the world of crypto assets and Bitcoin. Perhaps you could give the listeners a bit of an understanding of who Dan Pickering is and your background.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So... Our fund background, first of all, has been going for about three years. So um, we've got three main funds, a Bitcoin fund, a managed fund, which invests across all the assets in the ecosystem. And um, we've got a third fund, a Bitcoin and gold fund, um, which I can probably touch on later. Personally, I'm a chartered accountant. And so I trained in, with PwC in London some years ago. I moved from there into internet gambling, spent quite a, a long time in that sector, spent some time in Gibraltar. Um, with some internet companies down there, gradually made my way sort of through that industry across to Asia, which was where I first encountered Bitcoin actually uh, in that industry, and arrived in Australia about 2013. Um, I was still in internet gambling at that point. Left there um, around 2018, which is when we launched um, launched these funds. So we're coming up now for our three-year anniversary. Um, roughly in a month's time. Yeah, so that's where we are. And how have those
0: funds performed roughly over that time?
1: They've gone well. Um, So both the major fund, the Bitcoin fund, and the managed fund are up about 650%. The managed fund's slightly in front of the Bitcoin fund, which has been a big effort to stay in front of Bitcoin. Um, But we've managed to do that. So yeah, they've gone well in the uh, three year period.
0: Now we seem to be an interesting juncture of the conversation around cryptocurrencies, con- digital assets in this area, and on one sort of side, you've got a whole heap of stories around, you know, the fellow in 2010 who used 10,000 bitcoins to buy two pizzas, and in today's value, that would be about 750 million dollars for two pizzas. Um, yeah, Bitcoin itself is up 600 odd percent the last 12 uh, 12 months. Um, anecdotally. It's interesting to note the fellow who runs my coffee shop has been making lots of money out of mining Bitcoin and trading Bitcoin is actively sort of asking, you know, should these be traded or what's the position looking for tips, et cetera. Mm. Um, uh, all, 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 and, and into that, which might be signs of over-exuberance and a lot of people would say, you know, these are all telltale signs of late stage in the dot-com bubble and we can remember this type of behaviour where... You know we've ebbed from fear and now we're clearly in a greed cycle. They would say. Uh, aside to that, you've got some large scale professional investment people. Um, you know, Fidelity have built built out infrastructure to hold custodially Bitcoin. Um, there's ETFs that have been built. Uh, companies like Square in the US, the big payments company, is now holding five percent of their cash on balance sheet in Bitcoin. Um, you're also seeing people like Cambridge Associates, one of the world's sort of most recognised asset consultants, telling people, well, maybe we need to look at this as a separate asset class. Um, so you've got all of this on the pro side. On the, on the other side, you've got this sort of argument where you've got people like Hamish Douglas out there saying that, you know, you've got envy mania where people are hearing about people making lots of money, they're jumping on it. Um, this has all the telltale signs of a bubble. Um, you know, game stock, ICOs, where people have been left with zero, etc. So it's with that sort of background that we delve into this area. But I think a good starting point for the beginners or novices listening would be what is Bitcoin in your explanation?
1: I think the simplest explanation I can give about Bitcoin is that it solved the problem of digital scarcity. So when the internet was born, everything was copyable. So you remember music was copied on Napster. It's easy today to copy an image. It's easy to copy an email. But if you want money for the internet, you can't have money that's copyable. So if I send you on the internet some digital dollars, you don't know that I haven't sent them somewhere else. And that problem, that double spend problem was a well-known problem in computer science for a long time. And that's what Bitcoin solved. Um, How do you create digital scarcity so that the recipient knows um, he or she is receiving something that is actually scarce. It's incredibly hard to do. Um, and it took a long time for that problem to resolve itself. And that's what Bitcoin did. Um, at its very essence, that's all That's all it does, is it proves itself to be scarce and everyone can independently prove it for themselves. And I think that's in contrast to um, Fiat currency. So if I say to you, how many Australian dollars are there in circulation? wouldn't know. Yeah. Nobody would know. Lots. Right. There are a lot. And the Reserve Bank probably doesn't know because they go missing, they get counterfeited. Now I can tell you right now how many Bitcoins are in circulation. I can just type it on my node, the exact number, and everybody can do it. And it's a profoundly different offering from Bitcoin than traditional currencies. Um, so, how many bitcoins are there in circulation at the moment? There's about 18.6 million of the total supply of 21.
0: And it has, uh, it, it taps out. It taps at out at 21.
1: Time. So, in the 21. year roughly 2140, you'll be at the maximum supply. So, we're a, we're 120 years away from uh, from that.
0: How many years away? Sorry.
1: 120.
0: Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. So, the problem that people say in terms of scarcity, uh, that When you get to that level, you're going to have a problem with Bitcoin Mm. is 120 odd years away based on... It's 120
1: odd years away. It's also probably not an issue because Bitcoin miners produce the new supply every 10 minutes, but they also earn the fees. So let's say we're in the year 2140. Fees will still be coming onto the market as new Bitcoins. You know, there'll be an active market in Bitcoins still circulating even after all of the supply is issued in 2140. You and I, of course, don't need to worry about that too much because um, we'll be seven feet under by then.
0: So, explain you've introduced uh, Bitcoin mining. Yep. Explain Bitcoin mining for us. So, systems,
1: the, please. the Bitcoin miners, um, every 10 minutes, Bitcoin produces a block of transactions. And the Bitcoin miners effectively compete to solve a block. So, you throw your processor power. Um, at a particular problem to resolve a Bitcoin block. And if you're successful, you're rewarded at the moment with six and a quarter Bitcoins um, for your efforts um, every 10 minutes. So there's a lot of money at stake, you know, every every 10 minutes it's sort of 350,000 US dollars or thereabout, including fees. And once um, a miner resolves a block, um, they publish that block to the rest of the world. And through the, um, basically the tricks of cryptography, um, it's trivial for everybody to say, yeah, you've done it properly, and I accept that you've um, calculated the problem correctly, even though the problem itself was very hard to solve. So that's, it. that's in effect the trick of cryptography. It's easy to prove that someone's got the right answer. It's really hard to get the right answer. And what the miners are doing is mining for that right answer. And um, it takes a great deal of processor power to do it, and it's expensive to mine Bitcoin.
0: I believe it takes so much power and so many people are doing it because of the economic rewards available that at the moment it's using more energy than a country like the Netherlands. Does this put it in a position in terms of Bitcoin and its future use that from an environmental social perspective, it creates a problem where it becomes a stranded asset? Well, it's it's interesting actually, and this it's quite topical because um,
1: a Norwegian oil company a, a few weeks ago called them um, Acre, and they're quite into green energy up in Scandinavia. And, and the founder of that company has set up a Bitcoin mining facility because he's basically seen that Bitcoin's part of the solution to this energy problem. If you mine Bitcoin, there's two factors right that, that go into your success, the cost of your power and the amount of processing capability that you've got. The cost of your power needs to be very, very low. And so what you find is um, the Chinese miners base themselves at the bottom of hydroelectric plants. And in flood season in China, you'll find Bitcoin's hash rate goes up because they've got excess power, which Bitcoin uses to mine mine the, um, the coins. You also find in North America, a lot of Bitcoin miners are using stranded gas when you mine oil in America, well, anywhere, actually, it releases methane into the atmosphere. And what the oil miners do, they burn off the methane because it's less damaging. CO2 is less damaging to the atmosphere than the methane itself. Bitcoin miners are going there, putting their mining equipment on top of these um, stranded assets, basically, and mining Bitcoin. And actually, it's a net benefit to the environment because you know that would have been burnt off. They're producing Bitcoin with it. So you're finding a lot of innovation around how do we use power efficiently is coming from Bitcoin, because that's the name of the game. To win in mining, you have to produce electricity very efficiently. And so, yeah, it uses a lot of power, a lot of it's renewable, and it's quite innovative in the way some of these miners are coming up with a way of mining it without, you know, you can't burn coal and mine Bitcoin profitably. You just, it won't work. Um, so, yeah, the, the energy is an issue, but it's crucial to the value proposition.
0: So, Bitcoin's clearly great at transferring value, particularly where transfers of money are illegal or for nefarious purposes. Um, for instance, getting money out of China, um, it, it seems to have been very successful. Um, what, what is the likelihood that it will become a long-term store of wealth in much way, in much the way that gold has become over the centuries. Um, And then off the back of that also, what risk is there of legislative risk in terms of governments clamping down on its ownership by its citizens? Yeah, I I think just on the nefarious use of Bitcoin, the number one (coughs) um,
1: method for nefarious transactions in the world is the US dollar. No comparison, right? Bitcoin is actually a terrible thing to use if you're involved in criminality. Because every transaction is recorded on the blockchain, right? The FBI love Bitcoin. But there's no point using Bitcoin if you're a criminal. And I think most criminals have cottoned onto that. And so this idea that Bitcoin's used for illegal transactions, I think back in 2013, Silk Road, et cetera, mm-hmm. that was true. I don't think it's true now. Um, because it's just, you know, the chain analysis companies can track Bitcoin, it's quite easy to do. So I think you're right. It's very good for transferring value. Um, I, I don't think that most of the value transfer, as I say, is for legal purposes at all. I think most people are transferring it um, back and forth for the right reasons. And um, a lot of Bitcoin trade goes on. So the turnover in Bitcoin is probably five times what the ASX does every day, even on the weekend. Right? Bitcoin trades twenty four seven. To the sort of question on regulation, um, I think. Certainly China are um, worried about Bitcoin for the reasons that you call out. So you can, you, know, you can take your wealth with you across borders. All you need to do is remember the password in your head and you can carry it with you all around the world. And so it's not terribly helpful for governments from that point of view, but what we're seeing is that governments are looking to regulate, not ban. So in November, um, there's, an op- there's an office of the controller of currency in the US quite an obscure branch of the Federal Reserve. And the head of that office, it was actually early December, came out and said, look, we're not going to ban Bitcoin. Right? So you can forget that, but we are going to regulate it. And from the moment he said that, that's where the surge in the Bitcoin price began, because that took away a big risk. Because if the Americans don't ban it, you can be sure the Chinese won't. Because there's really um, great incentive for both those countries to be significant in Bitcoin. So you know, to have some footprint in that asset class. And so that was a big moment for Bitcoin in December when he said that. So this risk of outright ban, I think is much lower than it was two or
0: three years ago. And what, what are some of those reasons of why they would both want it? Because people would argue China's been very successful in developing its economy by banning Google, Facebook, social medias, and, and that's allowed them to create a global giants in technology in Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba mm. where if they didn't ban those foreigners from that they probably wouldn't have built their own yeah so so what are some of the factors of why they would want bitcoin as well in china Well, i think for for the understanding of the technology right i think the <coughs> first
1: country that re, um, releases a central bank digital currency is going to be the chinese i mean they're there it's being tested uh, in one of the states in china so that getting people to understand how the technology works And well, it doesn't help if you ban the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, they know that there's something in this that they can use. They're going to produce their own, you know, digital Juan that'll that'll sort of borrow some of the technology from Bitcoin. Um, But I don't think it helps them to uh, ban what they view as potentially um, a big piece of future technology. It's a bit like you say, okay, well, they banned Facebook and Google, but they didn't ban the internet. Mm -hmm. And it's a
0: similar... You know, banning Bitcoin is a bit similar to that. You,
1: you wouldn't they, they do might, it.
0: Might ban Bitcoin, but they won't ban cryptocurrencies per se, which is a leads us in. I guess does Bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, etc. What are the pros and cons, and would people have a portfolio of these assets? Um, or what What is the reason to hold Bitcoin versus another digital currency?
1: But I think if if you if you look at um, what's the strongest asset? What's the the one with the longest history? Um, It's Bitcoin. If you look at the actual protocol itself um, and understand it, to me, um, Bitcoin is the best one. I believe in the proof of work protocol that Bitcoin uses. Some of these other assets use um, proof of stake. So the difference there is um, when you're mining Bitcoin, it's about, you know, how much compute you've got in a proof of stake coin, like um, Ethereum's moving to proof of stake. That's about the person that stakes the most of the coin um, is the most likely to resolve a block. So it's a very different um, methodology. In our fund, we're looking for um, things that we believe will sort of stand the test of time. I think Bitcoin um, has very much done that now. What, What are we, 12 years in? Um, We've had multiple attacks on Bitcoin, we've had multiple large drops in Bitcoin. We have nothing but negative news about Bitcoin. You rarely read something positive, mostly it's people saying, you know, this is terrible for, well, pick your reason. Um, But nothing stops it, right? It's just a piece of computer code and it keeps going and going and going. Adding other assets to the portfolios, I mean, our managed fund is in assets that we believe will benefit from the ecosystem generally. So we like um, cryptocurrency exchange tokens because they have an economic imperative. They live in an ecosystem, which is the exchange where the token's useful. We like um, inside video game tokens, so the money that can be used in a video game because it has an ecosystem and it's valuable in the ecosystem. There's probably now over 4,000 tokens. I would guess that Three thousand nine hundred of them are going to zero, so we're extremely careful about what we choose for our managed funds portfolio. And so, when you say, "Is it worth having a portfolio of assets?" Well, it is, but you know, we choose very, very carefully. Liquidity is hugely important to us. Um, the economics of the token hugely important to us. And most tokens that we encounter just they don't get past stage one, which is liquidity. Um, and then, you know, where they do, as I say, we look at the economic imperative. I'm very keen on tokens that have an ecosystem around them. So they've got a video game around them, then great, I understand that. Um, there's a thing called land, right, mm-hmm. which is a virtual world. And you can go in that virtual world and buy land and set up a company and buy avatars. And the currency of that virtual world is MANA, right, M-A-N-A. Now, I, I think those sorts of things are brilliant because when you go in the game, it's like, you know what? Yeah, I will buy a special sword or a special spaceship, you know? So those sorts of things wrapped in an ecosystem with its own economy? Yes. Most of them? Uh, no. So, um, yeah, portfolio construction is, well, for us, we, that's where we spend all our time. It's,
0: but it's difficult and you need to be careful. But at the end of the day, does that asset of a MANA chip currency token have any intrinsic value? Because in some of the cases where I looked at those, the the skins that people are buying inside game add no extra functionality in terms of the player's ability to perform the game or the skills. It just makes them look different. so does it have any intrinsic value at the well, end of let's that?
1: Well, say, let's say there's a game called Infinite Fleet, right? Mm-hmm. Which hasn't launched yet, but Infinite Fleet has its own currency, um, which runs on a, on a blockchain. And people at the moment are buying spaceships for the game. And so they've got people designing these really quite beautiful spaceships. So we go into the game and my spaceships better than your spaceship, okay? and we're flying around space and I'm shooting things and you're shooting things and you think, you know what, I want a better spaceship. I'm gonna buy a better spaceship. And so, I don't know w- what you mean by intrinsic value. In the game, if I see this amazing spaceship and you're you're flying around in the Millennium Falcon, yeah, I want one of them, I'm gonna get a better spaceship. And so, they are valuable when you're playing in that ecosystem. Clearly, outside of the ecosystem, they're not valuable. But, you know, people, Spend a lot of time playing video games. It's like the number one form of entertainment in the world. So I think that, and they're NFTs, right? Which we, we non-
0: non-fungible tokens. Indeed, you might term, touch on So, so
1: those spaceships are NFTs, and they are valuable. People are buying them for thousands of dollars right now, and I'm I'm tempted myself, I have to tell you.
0: Yeah, it it strikes me as uh, if my economic history serves me right. Uh, Adam Smith, water diamonds paradox, where. Uh, you know, he, the, the, every values derived from utility. Water's fantastically high in utility. Everybody needs it. Diamonds, mm. uh, except for diamond cut saws, etc., don't have a lot of utilization. But the price of a diamond is hundreds of times x on top of that of water. So um, maybe we can't explain all things. We will get to non fungible tokens. Um, try to use my research to to good use here. We on on. Blockchain, and you've flagged one of the recent moves why we've seen this dramatic increase. Do you think that's also been aided by the fact that we've seen since the COVID pandemic and almost stemming all the way back to um, the financial crisis that governments have implemented quantitative easing or the akin to printing money by standing behind and buying bonds and pushing supply of fiat currency mm. into the system? Has that helped? the case for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, no
0: doubt. I mean, I
1: think Bitcoin um, validates itself on its own, right? So that that problem that it solved of digital scarcity, it, and it's, it's proved it for 12 years, that that computer code works. So it is validated in its own right. Um, all that's happening is fiat currency is showing its weakness, right? So as I said earlier, you don't know, and I don't know how many Australian dollars are in existence, but I can tell you that the supply of Australian dollars doubles every six years. Since 1969, it's doubled every six years. And so one thing I find curious in Australia is people love talking about house prices right And They'll tell you on average, house prices double every sort of 10 years in Sydney. So. Mm-hmm. But the supply of money doubles every six years. So are houses a good investment? I don't know. So you know, we're looking for the scarce thing and what's happening with quantitative easing and all this cash that's coming in, it's showing that Bitcoin's scarce. Arguably, Bitcoin's not doing anything. One Bitcoin is worth one Bitcoin, right? But these fiat currencies are going down in value because the, de- the denominator is growing so quickly. So even the US, right, since 2009, two thirds of all the US dollars in existence have come into existence since 2009. Now that's a lot of money that's just appeared. And yet people still record their results, say, of how their fund's going in US dollars. It's like, well, if you didn't go up versus the US dollar, what were you doing, you know? Because there's so many of them. Um, And so it's just, I think it's just proving that scarcity matters. And one of the most scarce things on Earth is Bitcoin. And I think it's greatly underestimated um, just how scarce it is. But people will begin to realise.
0: Dan, you referenced um, the economic reasons around exchanges and so forth. Um, digital wallets and keys, what are they? I suspect this gets around, you know, there's, I talked about some of the stories in markets and the fact that, you know, Uber drivers and cafe drivers, you know, some of the times when they ask me what do I do, et cetera, the conversation, oh, well, what do you think about the value of this cryptocurrency or this? Um one of those stories around wallets you know that you see or around is that, for instance, there's an individual, I think who's at number five out of six, and I think lots of our listeners would empathize with them that you know you get logged out and you can never log in again or something. In this case, I think it's many millions of dollars if they get their password wrong one more time. yeah um, can you explain digital wallets and keys for our listeners?
1: Yeah. um. Keys are part of cryptography. So in cryptography, you've got a public key and a private key. And the best way, I think, of thinking about it, if if you've used WhatsApp, um, and WhatsApp uses cryptography, in fact, loads of things use cryptography, the internet and encryption. In WhatsApp, um, the app itself, where you're typing your messages, is basically the wallet. What it's doing, it's using the private key inside that wallet to encrypt your message that you're sending to your friend and it sends it to them over the internet and they decrypt it with their key. And Bitcoin wallets are the same. The wallet is really the wrapper around the public and private key. So people send Bitcoin to your public address uh, and you um, control those Bitcoins with the associated private address that you would never share with anybody. Now if you lose that, um, unfortunately, if you haven't backed it up properly, your Bitcoins are gone. because like we spoke about earlier, the properties of sort of cryptography, going from the public key to the private key is virtually impossible. Well, no one's ever done it yet. Going from the private key back to the public key is trivial. If you lose that private key, yeah, your Bitcoins are gone. But there's lots of things you can do to make sure that you back it up properly. You know, If you want to look after your own Bitcoins, um, it's certainly doable, um, but you've got to know what you're doing and do it in the right way. And there's loads of stories of people that's lost millions and millions in Bitcoin.
0: They've thrown away the hard drive yeah. or recycled the computer or got re- upgraded,
1: yeah. et cetera. Yeah, I mean, and we've all done like it. Ex- I mean, I've lost um, cryptocurrencies way back when, when, you know, because when you when they're not worth much, you're sure. not that careful. And then, you know, six years elapses and it's like, yeah, probably could have been a little bit more careful there. But, How much would have they been worth today? Well, have you done the number? Yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah, come on! I, I want to find them. <laughs> no, it was Ethereum actually. It wasn't Bitcoin uh, that I mislaid. It'd be about three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, expensive mistake, but that's
0: life. It's a good story. Yeah, good Wait, story. Is it? <laughs> oh, interesting. Anyway, um, why would people look to invest via a fund like you're running rather than via an exchange or doing it themselves?
1: Well, I think it depends on quantum, right? So if you if you're putting a small amount. Into Bitcoin, um, that's a nice way to start, and you can probably go to an exchange, buy it yourself, experiment with storing it, experiment with moving it around. I mean, you know, if we're talking sort of five, ten thousand dollars, it's not the end of the world if something goes wrong. Obviously, you would prefer um, that it didn't. But if you're investing sort of six-figure sums in Bitcoin, you might want to, um, you know, use a fund because. For example, we buy Bitcoin over the counter, we don't buy on exchanges. So the price at which we buy is significantly more competitive uh, than some of the exchanges you might use as a retail client. So the fees at Bitcoin exchanges can be very high. So we can beat those prices by up to sort of 7% depending on what's happening in the market. Time of day when you buy matters as well. Um, so you know there's a, there's a few things that and um, a few advantages we can bring around price. Um, which are quite significant, right? So people really get their first few years of management fee free just on what we buy the Bitcoin at, versus what they could buy it themselves. Um, And also they don't need to worry about storage, right? So we look after that, we've got our own wallets. We also, most of our assets now are with um, third party custodians who've built pretty impressive systems for storing this Bitcoin, um, which we've sort of looked at. They've had audited, um, you know, we're pretty, Pretty confident with um, how we do it, and we've been doing it for three years, of course. And a lot of people say, "Look, for significant numbers, you do it. It's it's too hard." Um, and it and it isn't too hard. Like it is, most people are capable of it. But the um, possibility for error exists, and if you make an error, yeah, there's there's no way back.
0: The consequences can be large. Mm. Uh, we've talked a little bit about. Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrencies and blockchain. you talked about the power of blockchain to resolve multiple ledgers, distributed ledger. Can you for our listeners explain the difference between the two between uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain?
1: Yeah sure. So a block let's start with a blockchain, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And let's say that we you and I
1: decide we're going to launch codeda coin mm-hmm. for example. And we uh, agree that we're gonna have, our blocks will be every 10 minutes, and you and I perform a transaction. Your transaction is, say, has a three and mine has a two. Okay, so there's two transactions in that block, two and three. And we agree that the way we get, what happens in a blockchain is those transactions get mixed up with cryptography, so they get hashed. Well, let's say we keep our hash simple, and we just say we're just gonna multiply the two transactions together, right? Two times three equals six. We then move to the next block. The next block now starts with a six, okay? So there's a six in there, and then we do two more transactions, which are multiplied together and by the six, okay? So now there's a mathematical link between this block and the next one because the second block contained a hash of the contents of the first block, okay? And as the the blocks grow, every link in the chain is mathematically related to all its predecessors. And that's important, because if somebody ever changes something in any predecessor block, everybody will know because it will just throw all the blocks out. So you'll instantly know, even if you go back all the way to block one in Bitcoin in 2009, someone changes one tiny detail, it'll just cascade through every block. So they're mathematically linked together. So that's the blockchain. In our example of CodaCoin. R two and three in block one there are Coda coins, right so we're exchanging um, digital tokens that sit within the blockchain and that's, their, that's the cryptocurrency and the cryptocurrency is protected by the blockchain okay so they exist within it and bitcoin the bitcoins in that Bitcoin blockchain they're endogenous to the chain right and that's quite an important distinction because there are blockchains out there where the assets the value actually is exogenous to the chain. And there's an open question about well, why are you using the blockchain then? Okay. If you're not embedding the value in the chain, it's is it a database? So it, it and we use that distinction all the time when we're assessing an asset. Do we want it in the fund or not? Is it using a blockchain properly or not? So the chain is protecting the cryptocurrency which sits within it. Um and then there are lots of examples. I'll give you an example. US, have you heard of Tether? the US dollar, so the US dollar token. So there's about $40 billion of this token in circulation, which people use as a proxy for the US dollar, right? And so I could send you some tether, but then you would have to go and redeem it for US dollars, right? So you've got to hope that the person that you redeem it with gives you the underlying. Can deliver. Yeah. yeah. And so you've got counterparty risk, right? So that's, a, that's an asset exogenous to its blockchain because the value is not within the chain, right? So they're very, very different ideas. And, you know, we much prefer um, investments where the asset is an exogenous, sorry, endogenous to the
0: chain it sits in. And that's quite an important distinction when you're picking what you put your money into. I've heard the blockchain explained as uh, a data network of records that uses decentralisation, so you've got a number of computers all decentralised in all different parts of the world, multiple places, um, and organisations, as well as a high level of transparency, so anyone can see or or, or have access to that, and also it's got immutability in terms of it can't be changed or forged, so those sort of key three aspects makes it very appealing to hold assets. Um, with that. Um, All right, let's turn on to, maybe let's talk to non-fungible tokens, one that I've had to do a little bit of research over the weekend on. Some of my colleagues in here were a little bit um, more up with it than I was. But um, from what I can undertake uh, or understand is I kind of think about Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and the golden token people had in that you had a token to get along. Um, So a non-fungible token from what I can tell and Correct, correct me where I'm wrong, but there's a lot of hype around these, considering uh, Jack Dorsey yep. uh, sold a uh, NFT or non-fungible token for his first tweet at $2.9 million US recently. Um, and then there was a digital artist um, who has used an NFT to sell uh, an, an image, an electronic art, digital art image for $69.3 million yep. using an NFT. So there's lots of... Um, airplay that that gets but from what I understand it, it is like a unique token if you'd like um, that allows you to exchange uh, for an asset um, where where it is uh, non replicable yeah
1: um, well let's take Do- let's take Dorsey's tweet right okay I've got that tweet on my phone yes okay. and so have you so I don't know what the person that spent 2.9 million dollars got Okay, they got a cryptographic signature inside the tweet that says Jack Dorsey signed it. So what? Okay, I, I don't think um, that particular use of an NFT is valuable at all. The Beeple thing at 69 million equally. That's the um, artwork. Yeah. So that that's that JPEG that has effectively got a cryptographic signature on it. Well, you know, again, you and I can have that on our computers um, this afternoon if we want. I think. NFTs to be valuable have got to be useful in an ecosystem, right? So let's say Dorsey's tweet um, was in a video game and he'd sold it in a way that said, well, look, you can display it on the wall of the spaceships we described earlier, right? Maybe then it's valuable because when you and I go into the video game, let's say we've got virtual reality headsets on and I'm showing you around my spaceship, I can say, look on the wall, that's Jack Dorsey's tweet, right? Because the video game could validate his signature and you'd know, yeah, you have spent two and a half, $2.9 million on it, right? But unless there's an ecosystem for it to exist in, like, they're worthless, aren't they? To me. So we look carefully at these NFTs. I like them, but they've got to have, um, again, we go back to this economic imperative, like can I actually use it in an ecosystem where I can enjoy it, right? So, if I can walk around um, a video game and see it, or a virtual world and see it and know that it's valid and have the software validate the signature, great. And if I can't, well, like I say, I've got Dorsey's tweet on my phone. I mean, I took a picture of it just so I could say, well, yeah, well, I've got it too. Mm-hmm. So why did you spend $2.9 million on it? So have you invested in, in, in any NFTs to date? Um, we've invested in a lot of, well, not a lot, but a few video game tokens where um, part of the economic imperative for the currency in the game is the sale of these NFTs, right? So again, the buying of spaceships, the buying of avatars, the buying of little trinkets within games, I think that's entirely valid. In fact, I know it's valid because people do it. They want this stuff. It's a huge, huge market. It's enormous, right? so i think it will be enormous this taking of things from the internet and just signing them and selling them off as nfts i can't get my head around that right because there's no ecosystem for that to exist in it's just exactly as it was before isn't it that that tweet that's signed it looks the same as the one that isn't right so yeah, i struggled with it yeah so i um But this reminds me a bit of 2017. There's loads and loads of crazy things happened. And then, you know, you end up with um, four or five things that are brilliant. And it's just sifting through and finding those brilliant things. Um, And I think there will be something amazing that comes out of the NFTs. Um, And I think my personal view is it will be the stuff that's in ecosystems. One of these ecosystems is going to take off, like in a big way, such that, there'll be a virtual world with an economy eventually bigger than the real economy. Like it's going to be enormous. Um, and just it's obviously it's hard to pick the winners at this stage though.
0: Well, that's what I think a lot of us, well, I struggle with. I, I knew through the tech bubble, for instance, that incumbents like Kodak were in trouble. 35 mil film uh, yep. was going to be in trouble. And Kodak invented the digital uh, digital photography and sort of tried to suppress it. Uh, as, as a lot of incumbents do, Sony with the invented the uh, the the pod and the replacement for the Walkman, but they were big sellers of Walkman, so they they sort of repressed it as well. What I do struggle with, though, is how do you pick the winners in that? I would have said it would be very hard for people to pick a big winner from digital fog. Digital photography is going to be someone like Instagram. That yeah. wasn't obvious when 35mm was going away. So yeah. I, so I think there are. Uh, a big struggles there. What do you think the future holds in five to 10 years of things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? Someone like Kathy Wood, who runs ARK, who's been on the podcast before, I noticed in doing a bit of research for this, is on the record in January, February this year, I think, of saying she believes Bitcoin's going to $500,000, yep. um, which would seem a big call. But Kathy's made big calls around Tesla in the past, and she's come to look good on some of those things. What's your view? Well, I think um, in terms of picking winners, yeah,
1: I agree it's difficult. And and if you, you know, if investors want to participate in the whole ecosystem, the best way to look at it is what is the base layer of this whole ecosystem, right? And back to the Dorsey tweet, right? He sold that tweet, $2.9 million. Then he said he immediately converted, he sold it in Ethereum. He immediately converted it into Bitcoin and he started distributing it to his sort of um, new projects in Africa, right? So he came straight back to what I consider the base layer of all of this sector, which is Bitcoin. So people that are making a lot of money out of X token, Y token, and there'll be loads of them this year, um, and most of them will go to zero in the end, but they'll host their value in Bitcoin. So I like this concept of, um, you know, what are the base layers of these ecosystems? I think Bitcoin is a base layer of internet money, right? And this whole thing about, this asset, that that asset, fine. But if you're in Bitcoin, you're likely to enjoy the success of all of them. As to um, you know, the predictions around price and where the whole thing goes. I think rather than rather than put a price, and I actually think she's been quite conservative there. But let let's look at what happens with fiat currencies. Like I said earlier. The Australian dollar supply doubles every six years since 1969, right? But at the moment, it's going a lot more quickly than that. Similarly, in America, right, fiat currency—it's just—it's gushing out of every central bank around the world. So what we know for sure is that the supply of fiat will be vastly higher than it is today in five years' time, and the supply of Bitcoin will not be. It'll be a little bit higher, right? We'll probably be at whatever, in five years, close to 19 million Bitcoins. Um, and so when the supply of one thing is increasing so rapidly and the supply of the other is absolutely known into the future, well, you kind of know what's going to happen to the price. Um, ultimately, where it goes it remains to be seen. But, I mean, we say to investors, look, if you're going to invest in the fund, have the right time horizon. So, And the right time horizon is at least one cycle of Bitcoin. You've got to hold it, or think you're going to hold it for four years at least. Because there is volatility, but it is um, rising in price. It's the best performing asset ever, right? Since it it came in in 2009, nothing's outperformed Bitcoin. And provided you've got the right time horizon for your investment, you'll enjoy all the other things that happen in the ecosystem, right? Because most of them will drop back down into Bitcoin. There'll be other things that outperform it. And I think, as I say, inside these decentralized worlds and video games, there's going to be some amazing stuff happening, right? So I've got no doubt that people will outperform Bitcoins with some of the things that happen there. And we're looking at those things. But the easiest way is just to buy the base layer, lock it away for five years, don't ride the price every two minutes as people do, uh, and just, just let fiat currency do the work for you, which it will.
0: Terrific. Dan, I think that's been a a wonderful uh, summary or take us through. I know we could have gone into much more depth in your areas. Uh, Before we wrap up, is there any other thing that you would like to leave the listeners with that you think is pertinent? Well, I think, you know, I just say to
1: people, have an open mind about it. When we started in um, 2018, you know, it's pretty hard to have conversations with people about Bitcoin. People are sceptical. And I would say that's right. You know, be skeptical, but don't be dismissive. Um, You know, do the research because this, um, the whole asset class has just performed tremendously, particularly Bitcoin and not, you know, this year or last year. Pick your time frame since it launched. It's outperformed everything. And I think it will continue to. And people would, uh, I think, benefit from looking into it and researching it. And I've yet to meet someone that's gone away and done their own homework that's then come back and said, no, I don't don't like it because, you know. Most people, and it took me two years to get there. 2013 to 2015, there's a lot to sort of get your head round um, but most people, you know, they convert in the end. So I would encourage people, you know, do some research, look into it, uh, and then participate in a small way and go from there.
0: Terrific, Dan, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Road. Appreciate it, thanks.
1: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting CodaCapital.com.